We are going through the book of Second Peter. It's towards the end of the New Testament. Last year, we studied the book of First Peter. And then about a year or two later, the apostle Peter wrote this letter to the same Christians that he wrote the first letter to. The first one was focused on encouraging them in the middle of persecution. The second one was encouraging them to live a godly life. And so we've demonstrated that to be the primary theme of this book. And as we move through it, we're going to show how the godly life, the theme of the godly life becomes unveiled in this short letter. How many of you have been watching the Olympics? One, keep your hand up. One, two, three, four, five, five. All right, this is good. Um, you are basically representing what's happening and people who are not watching the Olympics either. The people that are, for whatever reason, Olympics this year is a significantly underrated event. Uh, 50% drop in viewership from 2018. Yes, let's feel sorry for that. Olympics. Ah, as Jessica. 12 million people are watching it this year as opposed to 24 uh, four years ago. For whatever reason, and everybody has an opinion what's happening around, but uh, Olympics aren't as popular as they once were. Nevertheless, records are still being set, including uh, the current Olympics. There's a Dutch speed skater by the name of Irene Woost. Irene Woost. She's 35 years old, and she, in the current Olympics, she became the first person ever, first Olympian, to win gold medals at five consecutive Olympic Games. So she set that significant world record. She is the champ since she has been since 19 years of age. She's the youngest Dutch Olympian in speed skating, and she's also the oldest Dutch Olympian in that specific sport. In 2006, she debuted as a speed skater and won her first gold medal. Four years later, at the 2010 Winter Olympics, she won the 1,500-meter event. Then in 2014, she won two gold medals and three silver medals, becoming the most decorated athlete at the Sochi Games. She won a record gold medals. And today, she has 13 medals, six of which are gold She's also the seven-time world all-around champion, a 14-time world single-distance champion, five-time European all-around champion. For 16 years straight, she has been the world champion in speed skating. And if you consider her story, there's nothing remarkable about her life necessarily. She wasn't born with a silver spoon in her mouth. Life hasn't necessarily just been all easy for her. Like a normal individual who is training for Olympics, her life also had setbacks. Before every single competition, she gets extremely nervous, such that she can't even eat. She has suffered numerous injuries. One took her three years to recover from back in 2008. In 2019, her best friend and former teammate died of lung cancer, and that set her back such that for a year and a half, she did not win a single competition. Most people consider her to be done back in 2019, 2020. They all said her career is over. But today, she stands as the single 
individual in human history to ever win five straight gold medals and five straight Olympic games. What is the secret to her success? This is what her teammates said about her. She is intensely dedicated and skilled at doing what she does. She is extremely disciplined and focused. Unlike anyone else that they know on their team, she remains focused on the task as she prepares for the Olympics. You consider that story, but then there's hundreds and thousands and thousands of stories at the current Olympic Games and then just go back in history nearly 2,800 years. This year is 2,798 years since the beginning of Olympics in Greece. And so almost 2,800 years of human history of some kind of competitions. It takes discipline. It takes significant sacrifice for somebody to become a champion, a champion much more a champion in the Olympic Games. And as you consider that, we understand that whatever reward and a award they receive, it's perishable. It was the Apostle Paul who said, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. And then a few years later, Paul says this, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The same kind of effort, if not more so, that it takes for somebody to become an Olympian. It takes for the Christian in his or her journey to actually become godly. And this is straight from the Bible. Whether it's Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or anybody else in the New Testament, they have the same expectation that for us to live the godly life, as Peter calls every single Christian to do, it will demand discipline. It will demand effort. It will demand perseverance. And so in the first 11 verses of the first chapter, Peter focuses on this perseverance. What does it actually take for us to accomplish the goal of being godly. And when will that happen? And so I'd like for us to read the opening verses of chapter one as we try to study and understand what it means for us to persevere toward godliness. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by its lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. As Peter opens up this letter, he immediately launches into the study of godliness. And last time we talked about the pursuit of godliness, and it starts out with a promise that God has given you everything you need to be godly. He has not withheld anything, any resource, any uh, empowerment from you in order for you to actually live a godly life. You have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. That is what verse three says. And he gives you the power to be godly. So he gives you a promise and then the power to be godly, the same kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same kind of power that allowed the transfiguration to take place as we see in verse 16, the same kind of power that indwells us as we live the Christian life and serve one another through our spiritual gifts. That is the power that we have to live a godly life. But then it takes a process. That's where we become realistic about our pursuit of godliness. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in a month. It's not going to happen in a year. In verse four, he says that we are becoming, verse four in the middle, partakers of the divine nature. In other words, there's a process that we undergo, but we know that we are in this process because of the end of verse four, we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by its lust. That is the beginning of the gospel where we recognize that we are sinners who have been fighting God, who've been living a life that is self-gratifying to our own glory. And once we realize that, and then we come to God asking him to forgive us of our sins, he promises to forgive every single sin. That's 1 John 1, 9. And he will continue to forgive us our sins as we continue to sin, even as believers. That is the gospel. That is the beginning point as we escape the corruption that is in this world through our lusts. So that gives us a new nature. We have the seed of God within us, according to 1 John 3, 9. And that gives us the ability to actually pursue godliness. We have access to this power that sustains us and sanctifies us. But in order for us to be godly and to persevere in godliness, Peter will give us verses 5 through 11. He explains what it means to persevere toward godliness. And he says there are three pillars that allow us to persevere toward godliness, the first one being a commitment to godliness. The first pillar that will demonstrate that you are persevering toward godliness is that you are committed to this. In verse five, he says, for this very reason, there's a logical connection to verse four and three and two and one with that simple phrase, for this very reason. In other words, what I'm about to write flows out of the first four verses. If you have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, then this will be true of you. That's what he's trying to say, transitioning from verse four to verse five. And he uses a literary device called a sori, which was used in the ancient times 
as a chain. You use one virtue and then you repeat it as you introduce the second virtue. And then you repeat that as you introduce the third virtue. And then he gives us seven virtues in verses 5 through 8 in a chain. This is intended to grab our attention and demonstrate the importance of godliness. It starts with faith in verse 5 and it ends with love in verse 7. That is the climax of this entire presentation in the ancient writing style. Now, the idea of lists of virtues, lists of character qualities, that wasn't new to the New Testament. I'll show you a few other passages later where they repeat. But this was expected and really promoted by the philosophers in antiquity. We have an example in the first century, about the time that Second Peter is written, in the same area, Asia Minor, a person who writes about Herostratus. Herostratus, and this is what it says about him, being a good man and excelling in faith. The words that are underlined are exactly the same Greek words that we have in our passage. So you can see there's four words that repeat in this completely secular Greek writing, but look at the overlap. Being a good man, and excelling in faith and excellence and righteousness and godliness, he exerted great diligence. So you have this affirmation of an individual in the first century in Asia Minor, where the Christians that would have received Second Peter are, and they read that, they saw this inscription somewhere, and then they read what Peter writes. In other words, there was an expectation by philosophers, even in an excessively immoral world, that virtue is to be prized, but also the affirmation that it requires great diligence. Even the ancient secular philosophers understood that you cannot gain excellence or godliness apart from great diligence. And so Peter in verse 5 immediately says, applying all diligence. In verse 10, he repeats the word diligent. So it's at the beginning and at the end of this little paragraph. Diligence is something that every single Christian should be willing to exert and apply if they are serious about godliness. And he says, applying all diligence. Last time he said something similar was back in verse 3. You have been given all things pertaining to godliness. So God has given you everything that you need to be godly. And then we come into the process and Peter says, now you need to apply all diligence. There are no exceptions. In other words, make every effort to be godly. Do your best. It's the opposite of laziness, sloth, self-indulgence. So Peter deploys these seven virtues to help us understand if we are actually persevering in godliness. This is what God has done for you, verses 1 through 4. Now this is what you have to do, verses 5 through 11. Why? Because you have been saved to live a life that's different. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 comes at the end of a paragraph that explains that we were spiritually dead and then God gave us life. And at the end of that, in verse 10, he says this, we are his workmanship. In other words, he did this. He did the work created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk 
in them. So God gets the glory for the work in Jesus Christ, but he did this so that we would walk in good works. In Titus chapter two, Paul speaks of the change that happens in the Christian life once the grace of God has come into that life. So verse 11 of Titus two, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. So if the grace of God has entered your life and the idea here is an epiphany, if it actually manifested itself to you, you understand it, you embrace it, you see it, then your life will be godly, sensible, righteous, abstaining from worldly desires and all ungodliness. There there is a New Testament expectation of a radical change in the Christian life. But to do that effectively, it will demand effort. John Calvin said this, since this task is hard and one of immense labor, he bids us put off the corruption that is in us and strive earnestly to this purpose. He means by this that there is no place for laziness or for following the calling of God easily or carelessly, but keen zeal is a necessity. That's John Calvin from the 1500s writing that if you're really going to pursue godliness, it will require zeal, not carelessness, not laziness. One commentator says Peter's strong language in this paragraph emphasizes just how strenuously we need to pursue this goal. Spiritual growth is not a matter that Christians can treat lightly. It is a goal to which we need to give ourselves body and soul every day of our lives. Because we have escaped the corruption of this world. Colossians 3 beginning in verse five, speaks of something similar that has taken place in our lives. Colossians 3, five. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who has been renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all in all. So he ends this little section by saying, there is no difference whether you're barbarian or Scythian or free or enslaved, circumcised and circumcised. It doesn't matter who you are. All of you are required as Christians to pursue a different way of life. Verse 12, what does that look like? So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against another one, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So if you need some examples of what a different life looks like, a changed life, look at verses 12 through 17. And it all begins with holiness and compassion and kindness. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes something similar to the Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 20. You did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And you being renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So in other words, Jesus Christ is the foundation of our transformation from the old self to the new self. And we're being transformed into the likeness of God. And the proof of that transformation is the virtuous life reflected in those seven qualities. But there's more of these lists in the New Testament. Just look on the screen. We're not going to go through all of those passages, but you can read them later if you're interested where multiple writers have the same expectation. If you are a Christian, your life will show it. There'll be a radical difference and a progressive transformation that is visible to all around you. The Christian confession isn't personal. It's not contained to your house or to your closet. No, it's a public display of your commitment to Jesus Christ. None of these lists are exhaustive. Sometimes they repeat each other. Sometimes they add new qualities. In other words, there's many manifestations of the Christian life. But the key that I hope all of us understand, that if you call yourself a Christian, you've changed. You're different. And if you're not different, then maybe you're not a Christian. And the first Peter chapter four, this is what Peter said to the same readers. So live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of man, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. There's a difference between how you used to live and how you currently live. And if you kept on reading, the people that used to live that way with you and do those things with you, marvel and mock that you're no longer doing those things. But for the Christian, that's the proof that you have escaped the corruption of the world And it's lust. And it all begins in verse five, applying all diligence in your faith. Faith is the spring from which these virtues come. And the idea of faith in antiquity had to do with faithfulness, reliability, allegiance. The same word was used to describe a patron relationship with somebody who was his servant. So a patron would be a wealthy individual 
who would have a household of servants or workers. And his commitment was to take care of them, to protect them. He was faithful to them. And in return, they're faithful to him. And so now in the Christian dynamic, God gives us faith. Philippians 1.29 says that. Faith is a gift. Ephesians 2 says that. So we've been given the gift of faith. And now in response to that faith, we are faithful to God. And that faithfulness is demonstrated through our character, which is our second pillar as we persevere towards godliness. We are committed to godliness and it takes diligence. It takes effort, avoiding all sloth and laziness and carelessness. As much as God has given to us to be godly, Get the parallel with verse three and verse five. That is how much we are to exert all diligence. And the proof of that is in the character, in the character of godliness. And so Peter says, supply moral excellence. The phrasing of this in the original demands urgency. It's not something you wait to start. It demands an immediate response. You immediately supply moral excellence. It's an image of a rich individual who lavishly provides for his people. It's limitless excellence. Whatever it takes, whatever it demands, we are going to supply all moral excellence. Who else was described as excellent in this passage? Look at verse three. Who is described as excellent in verse three? Somebody has to get this right. I'm going to wait until somebody says something. Who? Who are we talking about at the end of verse three? Jesus. Thank you. When in doubt, 99% of the time, Jesus is the right answer. Unless we're talking about Satan. There's a story. My, uh, a friend of mine from seminary tells the story. He says he went to a uh, kid's camp, youth camp. And so he basically says, who is the prince of the power of the air? And the kid says, Jesus. He's like, Satan. (laughs) So almost always Jesus is the right answer. In verse three, he's talking about Jesus. He called us by his own glory and excellence. Do you get the parallel he's trying to accomplish? Jesus is excellent. He's drawing you to himself with his excellence. And now you are to supply moral excellence. It's the same exact word in the original. In other words, if you admire Christ and his perfection, his beauty, his character, his godly, his holiness, his godliness, all godliness is, is to be like God. That's all that means. God-like. So if Jesus is that and you are attracted to him, and then he says, no, you as a Christian supply moral excellence. In other words, pursue the same qualities that you admire in Jesus for yourself to the same exact degree. And we don't stop in our perseverance until we become like Jesus. I've said this verse many times and I'll say it again. First John 3. When he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. So this pursuit and commitment to godliness and supplying all moral excellence, we have this commitment all the way until the moment we see Jesus face to face because that's the moment when you become like him. Not before. 
For some, it'll come sooner than others. It could come tomorrow for some of you. It could come in 60 years. Could come in 100 years. Maybe for the youngest ones here. But it's when we see Jesus face to face. Until then, our lives are characterized by an aggressive pursuit of purity and excellence. Peter met with Cornelius, who's a centurion in the Roman army in Acts chapter 10. And as he shares the gospel with him, in verse 38, he summarizes the life of Jesus in this way. You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is how he summarizes the life of Jesus. He went about doing good. The idea behind supplying moral excellence is that your life is a good life. It's characterized by virtues, godly and good, virtuous deeds. That's the idea behind this terminology. Twice, Peter in 1 Peter 2 and then 2 Peter 1, he uses that word to describe Jesus. And then twice, he uses it to describe us in his writings. The only other use in the New Testament is in Philippians 4.8. And some of you have memorized that verse where Paul addresses the the temptation to be anxious. And he says, this is how you battle anxiety. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, that's our word. And if anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So in the passages in Peter, it has to do with excellent actions, excellent living. In Philippians 4.8, it has to do with excellent thinking. So the expectation of the Christian is that in our thoughts and in our actions, we pursue excellence. In other words, we also protect our minds and we control our minds. And we do that, verse 5, through knowledge. That's the end of verse 5, through knowledge. In your knowledge, or in your excellence rather, you pursue knowledge. And the idea here is knowledge of Jesus Christ. In verse three, he talked about knowledge, the true knowledge of him who called us. So we have a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter three, verse 18, he'll tell us, commanding us, grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior Jesus Christ. So it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a personal understanding of who Jesus is. It's contrasted in chapter 2, verse 12, with those who are false teachers, false converts. And look at what they're characterized by. 2.12. These, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. So those who are false have no knowledge. Those who are true pursue the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you remember back in chapter one of first Peter one in verse 14, he said, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. So in other words, the life of lust is attached to a life of ignorance. So if you wonder about yourself, why do I keep falling for the same lusts? 
Why do I keep tripping over the same temptations? Why does it feel like I just can't get over this specific sin? According to 1 Peter 1.14, it's because you are ignorant. And you're not investing your time into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The solution to overcoming lust and pursuing moral excellence is knowledge. Knowledge of Jesus Christ. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So you constantly are pursuing Christ, you're studying Christ, you are as if wearing Christ. And they had, the false teachers had no personal knowledge of Jesus Christ and their lives were characterized by lust. But that demands also self-control. In verse six, in your knowledge, self-control. We have control over all our cravings all our desires. A man, according to Proverbs 25, 28, Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls, easily conquered. And so Peter says, a Christian life is a life of self-control. The last fruit of the spirit that's listed in Galatians 5 22 and 23 is self-control. Contrast that with false teachers in chapter two, verse two. Many will follow their sensuality sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned and in their greed, they will exploit you. With false words, their judgments from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. They are characterized by idleness and mockery, and sensuality, and they, other people malign the way of truth because of them. And then look at chapter three, verse three. They mock and they follow after their own lusts. That's their life. That's what their life is characterized by. Continual pursuit of unruly lusts. They indulge in them. So if you want to evaluate yourself, Do so through this lens. If your life is characterized by a lack of self-control, then perhaps you're a false convert. That's the pattern of your life. And then Peter continues, self-control, verse six, in your self-control, perseverance. Perseverance is the next virtue, which means endurance that is developed by persistent self-control. It's an image of being steadfast under a heavy load. Somebody who's carrying a heavy load and they keep moving forward. They're not falling down. They keep moving forward toward their destination. And in our context, it's perseverance amidst pressure from temptation. It's the lusts that we're fighting, verse 4. It's the perseverance, the moral excellence that we are pursuing. And so perseverance has to do with continuing to endure in in the face of temptation. But there's no way for us to succeed apart from having a forward-looking understanding about ourselves. That it doesn't, it's not something that you do today. What drives you forward and keeps you moving forward under this heavy load and the pressure of temptation from this world is what's ahead of you. It's what's in front of you in the future. Remember what John said, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, 
purifies himself. In other words, it's a futuristic hope that one day I will see him face to face. One day I will be transformed fully into his likeness. That's the expectation. That's the hope. And so that allows us to keep moving forward toward godliness. And now in verse six, he says, in your perseverance, godliness. And he's back where he started in verse five. And in verse three, godliness. It's all about godliness, which as I just said, simply means to live like God. You're godlike in your behavior. It means it's a, it reflects a life that is totally consecrated or devoted, set apart for God. That is godliness. I would say this especially applies to those who are in leadership. Whether you're a small group leader or a community group leader or a Bible study leader or an elder or a pastor or you're leading a ministry team in any kind of capacity where you exert influence over other people, there is a biblical expectation and an accountability that is greater to your godliness. There is a writer who wrote specifically to pastors in regards to this godliness, but I think it applies to all spiritual leaders. And this is what he said. The calling and profession of the, of the clergy man demands eminent spirituality. An ordinary excellence is not sufficient. The Christian minister by his very vocation is the sacred man in society. By his very position, he is forbidden to be a secular member of community. And hence, he must not be secular either in his character or his habits. He is the marked and peculiarly religious man in the community. His very position and vocation, therefore, make it incumbent upon him to be eminently spiritual. The idea is that as a Christian leader, you bring spirituality and godliness into the context in, into which you step into. So when you walk into a room, do you bring a sense of godliness into those conversations? Do you bring a sense of holiness or do you lay that, leave that at home? Or do people around you know, not in some self-righteous way, that you're holy, you're godly, you're pursuing this goal of being godlike. Yes, he's speaking of pastors and preachers specifically, but the New Testament expects that of every single believer. And I hope that it's clear enough and weighty enough that as our world goes from bad to worse, 2 Timothy 3.1, deceiving and being deceived, haters of God, haters of evil, haters of good rather, lovers of evil, that you stand out. Like Philippians says in chapter 2, Verse 15, Philippians 2.15. So that you would prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's not limited to preachers. So you shine in a dark world, crooked, perverse as a light. 
And I hope that causes you to reflect on your own life, on your own habits, on your own decisions, and on how you spend your time. And again, it's not about self-righteousness. It's not about being holier than others. It's about understanding why you were saved. It's about understanding that God gave you everything he could possibly give you to make you God-like in your character. So then the problem isn't with God. The problem is with us and our unwillingness to embrace that high standard and be holy as he is holy. This is what it means for the Christian to live a godly life. Whatever it takes, whatever sacrifice it takes, whatever you have to leave behind, you do it. And you radiate godliness into every single room that you walk into. And it's not just about the sins that mess you up. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talk about the sin that so easily entangles us and laying aside every encumbrance. That's not a sinful category. There are certain things that aren't sinful that prohibit us from becoming godlike. They're holding us back and they're not sinful inherently. But Hebrews 12 says, you lay them aside in your Christian race. Why do we do this? Because we understand what awaits those who are ungodly. Chapter two, verse nine. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That is what awaits the ungodly, the day of judgment. Chapter three, verse seven. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So if you want to understand what the future holds for those who refuse godliness, it's judgment, it's fire, it's permanent, it's eternal. And so because of that, we pursue godliness. We understand that we would rather not be judged and suffer eternally in the lake of fire. And as Peter ends his list of seven virtues, he goes from godliness to brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness, love. Brotherly kindness and love. He now introduces this familial language that you as a Christian are a sibling to every other Christian in all of human history. You are in the family of God. John 1, 12 and 13 says that. To those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. After Jesus is resurrected, he calls his disciples for the very first time in his human life, my brothers. The plan of salvation was accomplished. That's John 20, 17, if you need the reference. And now there's a family of God that has been created and all of us belong to that family. And in that family, we practice kindness, verse seven, and love. In first Peter chapter one, verse 22, Peter talked about this already. He said, in obedience to the truth, you have purified your souls from a sincere, for a sincere love of the brothers, fervently love one another from the heart. So if you have been purified, then you are going to love the other believers. And this is one of those ways how we can be assured of our salvation. I'm, I'm going to read a long passage for us because I think it could be helpful. In general, every time you begin to doubt your salvation, 
Go back to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, it'll be on the screen in case you want to follow along. Beginning in verse 10. So verse 9 says, you have been born of God. Okay, verse 9. 1 John 3, 9, you have been born of God. His seed abides in you. That's the declarative statement. Now verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So you want to know if you're a child of God or a child of the devil? If you don't love the other Christians, you are a child of the devil. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for that reason, did he, for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love brothers. He who doesn't love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And here it is. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. That's the whole section. And he says, you've been born of God. His seed abides in you. This is how you know that you're of the truth. And when your heart begins to accuse you that you're not of the truth, that you are not born of God, that you're not a child of God, the way you assure yourself is not by going to an emotional Christian song. It's not by going to a conference that will get you really amped up about living the Christian life. It's not about listening to a passionate sermon. That's not in this text. The way you will assure your heart is by loving other Christians. That's how the Bible often, repeatedly demonstrates and and defends rather assurance. You want to know if you're a true Christian? Do you love other Christians? And so whenever doubt enters your mind, go back and reflect on your life as a Christian. Am I loving the Christians in my life? That's how you gain assurance. Not in emo music. <laughs> and let me give you a few other passages that demonstrate that. John 13, 34. By this, O men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's it. That's how they know that you're mine. You have love one for another. Back in 1 John, verse 8, the one who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. Verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which which God loved us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's how we know that we are God's. And then Paul makes it super simple. Galatians 5, 6. It's not about circumcision. 
That's not the essence of the Christian life. That's what he says. It's faith working through love. And if you go back to 1 Peter, the opening of our section was faith, right? In your faith. And then the list of virtues. And where does it all end? Verse 7, love. Peter and Paul had the same understanding of the Christian life. Faith produces love. Galatians 5, 6, 2 Peter 1, 5 and 1, 7. That is what will give you assurance of your genuine salvation. Well, it takes us to our third pillar as we persevere toward godliness. And that is confidence from godliness. Confidence from godliness. It's this assurance that we just talked about, but primarily looking at verses eight and beyond. If these qualities are yours and increasing. So you have embodied all of these qualities. They're yours. You possess them. That's the idea behind these phrases. You are completely taking, taken over by these qualities. And beyond that, they are increasing. They are reaching a point of excess. It doesn't happen periodically. These virtues don't kind of like spark once in a while in your life and then diminish. So once every quarter, you'll see love come out. Once every quarter, you'll see excellence and self-control and knowledge. No, these are yours. You possess them and they are increasing continuously. Then verse eight, you're not useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So the first confidence that you have that you are persevering toward godliness is knowledge of Christ. This is how you know you're growing in the knowledge of Christ. 3.18 commands us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how you know you're doing it. You've got these virtues in your life and you're not useless. Remember, we were useless back in 1 Peter 1.14. Now we're no longer useless. We're not fruitless for Christ. So our pursuit of the knowledge of Jesus produces fruit. You can look at John 15 verses one through 11 for that. And secondly, the confidence also demonstrates itself that we're separated from sin. Verse nine, for he who lacks these qualities, the qualities we just talked about, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So verse four talks about this separation from corruption. But if you're not pursuing these qualities, you're not demonstrating them, then you have forgotten your purification. You are short-sighted. It's antithetical for a Christian to not pursue a life of godliness to the character and the nature that he or she has. You have a new nature. Therefore, it produces new fruit and it produces new desires. So a lazy, fruitless, useless, not disciplined Christian life is not a Christian life. That's what he's trying to say here. And so that's why he says in verse 10, be more diligent. In verse five, he says, apply all diligent. Verse 10, be more diligent. Beyond all, whatever that means, even beyond all diligence, apply more diligence. That's what he's expecting us. In other words, it doesn't stop. We never push cruise control. 
we always move forward and increase. And that also confirms the stability of our faith. Verse 10 says, be more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. He talked about being called back in verse three. He talked about being chosen in first Peter chapter one and chapter two. Because as long as you practice these things, the things, the virtues we talked about, you will never, ever stumble. That's the literal translation of the Greek. You will never, ever stumble. So if you are looking at your life and you see qualities of virtue, those seven characteristics, you will never stumble in pursuit of godliness. You will know for certain that you belong to him. And then finally in verse 11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. There's confidence that we're going to enter the eternal kingdom of God. You know, the very first time Jesus is introduced as a preacher in Matthew 4, 17, in Mark 1, 15, it says he came preaching the kingdom of God. And then in Luke chapter four, verse 43, again, the beginning of his ministry, he says this to his disciples, I must preach the kingdom of God for I was sent for this purpose. So Peter takes us back to the beginning and the purpose of Jesus' coming. This is why he came to open up the kingdom of God to people, to preach about it, to help us understand how to get into it. And then Peter says, this is what you want. This is why Jesus came. This is why you were saved to get into the kingdom. So if you want to know that you are moving in that direction, you're not all of a sudden detoured and you're going in the wrong direction, away from the kingdom. Verse 11 says, in this way, through these virtues, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord will be abundantly supplied to you. That's confidence. That's assurance. That as you look at your life and you say, I am pursuing godliness. I want to be like Christ. I want to be excellent. I want to be moral. I want to be loving and I want to be kind and I want to have self-control and I want to persevere and I want to know Christ more. If that's true of you, then you can be sure that you are entering the kingdom of God. You're on the right path. That's confidence that we are given in this passage. And so he says, supply more excellence to all of us in verse 11. Even more, it will be abundantly supplied to you. Back in verse 5, he said, supply moral excellence. So if you do your part, if you supply moral excellence, then God promises in verse 11 to supply abundantly the eternal kingdom for you. Do you see the reward? That should be motivating. That's the nearsightedness or the farsightedness of our lives. You're nearsighted because all you see in front of you is the world, the glitter, the glamour, the attraction, the temptations. And you don't see beyond what's in front of you, the temptations in front of you. You don't see the eternal kingdom, where you're headed, why you were saved. That's the idea is that you're no longer distracted by what's in front of you. There's a saying, out of sight, out of mind. You know it? In other words, if you don't see somebody, you, you stop thinking about them. So you you can't see the kingdom. And so sometimes we forget that we're headed towards the kingdom. That's the short-sighted nature of us falling into temptation. And Peter says, don't be short-sighted. Rather, 
Remember where you're going. You're going into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the destination even at the end of this book. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, since all these things will be destroyed, what sort of people should you be in holy conduct, conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, that's our goal. That's our ambition. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're moving. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So whether it's in chapter one or in chapter three, the beginning of the book or the end of the book, the way he's going to motivate us toward godliness and holiness and blamelessness and spotlessness is by saying, remember, there's a new heaven and a new earth. There's the eternal kingdom of God. That's where you belong. That's where you're headed. That's your citizenship. And only the godly will make it there. Therefore, pursue the godly life. Even if it's difficult. Even when the gravitational pull of this world is so strong. And the temptations overcome us so often. He says, look beyond it. Don't be short-sighted. And I end with a prayer from the Puritans called Earth and Heaven that describes this tension. Oh Lord, I live here as a fish in a vessel of water, only enough to keep me alive. But in heaven, I shall swim in the ocean. Here I have a little air in me to keep me breathing. But there I shall have sweet and fresh gales. Here I have a beam of sun to lighten my darkness, a warm ray to keep me from freezing. Yonder I shall live in light and warmth forever. My natural desires are corrupt and misguided, and it is thy mercy to destroy them. My spiritual longings are off thy planting, and thou wilt water and increase them. Quicken my hunger and thirst after the realm above. Here I can have the world. There I shall have thee in Christ. Here is a life of longing and prayer. There is assurance without suspicion. Asking without refusal. Here are gross comforts more burdened than benefit. There is joy without sorrow. Comfort without suffering. Love without inconstancy. Rest without weariness. Give me to know that heaven is all love. Where the eye affects the heart. And the continual viewing of thy beauty keeps the soul in continual transports of delight. Give me to know that heaven is all peace, where error, pride, rebellion, passion raise no head. Give me to know that heaven is all joy, the end of believing, fasting, praying, mourning, humbling, watching, fearing, repining. And lead me to it soon. That's the tension. Until we get to heaven. And the godly make it there. Let's pray. Lord God, it is difficult 
to faithfully pursue godliness. While we understand that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness, we don't always feel like we have what we need in the moment of temptation. But now we know from Peter's clear explanation what it takes. It comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so I ask that all of us here who know you would gaze into the face of Christ and that will sustain the transformation from glory to glory. I pray for those who do not know Jesus Christ, who are still holding on to their sin. They don't see the beauty of Christ. They don't really care for heaven. They're indifferent to the eternal judgment that awaits all the ungodly. Pray that your Holy Spirit would give them life, would open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ and to see the true danger of sin and judgment. And that they would, in response to that new life that you've given them, would repent and ask for forgiveness and follow you faithfully. Lord God, we love you. We want to be godly. We want to be faithful. We hate it when we fail. We feel so guilty. And so we need your grace to pick us up and to help us to move forward toward more excellence, exerting more diligence, maintaining our focus on eternity. Help us to remember that heaven is our future home and not this earth. So protect us. Jesus prayed for our protection before the cross. And so we ask, protect us from the evil one in this world that he would never succeed in tempting us. We pray this because we want Jesus to be glorified through our godliness. Amen.